0: I ran into this quote this week as I was preparing to preach. Good questions inform, great questions transform. Good questions inform, great questions transform. I don't know anything about the author, but I found the statement insightful. Can you sympathize? For many of us, I suspect we have a moment, a time in our lives, when a truly great question, rather than simply a statement, shifted our thinking or the direction of our lives in some way. And it would seem that Paul knew this idea rather well as well. In our text this morning, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul directs 16 insightful, pointed, and rhetorical questions at this Corinthian church. 16 questions you'll read as we go through this section. Paul's point, what he's trying to bring the Corinthians to ask themselves is, What are we to do with the freedom we have in Christ? How are we to handle these rights and these privileges that we have been given in Christ? Read with me these 16 questions that Paul has for the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord or Jesus our Lord? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowmen should plow in the hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, we, or, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we've praised you for who you are, uh, for what we know of you, and we are so humbled by that reality. We've praised you for the fact that apart from you, you, we can do nothing, and without the blood of Christ, we had no possibility of saving ourselves. Lord, we're so thankful. We sit here as a blessed people who have the joy not only of having fellowship with you, but having fellowship with one another. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word together, as we examine these Christian rights and liberties that we have, that you would give us wisdom in our thinking, that you would help us to have discernment as we think through the challenges of this. Lord, that your word would speak forth boldly this morning, that you would help it to sink into our hearts and into our minds, that you would help it to change our attitudes and actions. Lord, help us to view our Christian rights and freedoms through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of your word. Use our time together as we study your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, if you were here, you know that Paul introduced this middle section of 1 Corinthians, where he addresses the disputes that the Corinthian church was having over their rights and their freedoms in Christ. The flashpoint of the dispute was this meat sacrifice to idols issue that we covered last week in chapter 8. And in the words of John MacArthur, Paul says, Love limits liberty. Our love for one another should limit our liberty, our freedom in Christ. We should refrain from taking certain actions and expressing certain opinions for the sake of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul continues this dialogue once again in chapter 9 by holding himself up as an example to the church. He holds himself and Barnabas up as an example to this church, and we see that we too must follow Paul's example. We must follow Paul's example first by celebrating the rights we have in Christ. Celebrating the rights we have in Christ. Secondly, we follow Paul's example by submitting those rights to God's word. Submitting our rights, our thoughts, our opinions to the word of God. And lastly, by surrendering our rights for the sake of the mission. Celebrating our rights, submitting our rights, surrendering our rights. Yes, I realize all of those don't start with S. But to my four-year-old, the C sounds like an S and so it would all work out. Paul first lays out these four rights that he has. Look at verse 1. He talks about these rights that he's been given. Verse 1 and 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? These four rhetorical questions. And then he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This first right that Paul has the, the freedom to claim is apostolic honor. He says, I have the right to be viewed and honored as an apostle. He asks these rhetorical questions, which in the Greek all imply that the answer is yes, right? Am I, Paul, not free? Well, of course Paul was free. He had every sort of freedom that the Corinthian church was so concerned with. Remember, they were fighting about their freedoms. Am I not an apostle? Again, the answer would have gone basically without saying, of course Paul was an apostle. Why? Because the next question, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One of the qualifications in the New Testament for being an apostle was having seen Jesus our Lord. And Paul says, I have seen Jesus our Lord. On the road, God appeared to me, Christ appeared to me, he blinded me, and he revealed to me that I was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Right? If you read 2 Corinthians 12, verses, actually flip to the right in your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4, there's also some evidence here that's really, really intriguing that's an affirmation that maybe even Paul had a revelation of Christ while he was in Corinth. Something the Corinthian church should have understood. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4. Paul, writing his second letter, says this to the, Corinth, or the church in Corinth. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and we're going to learn he's speaking of himself here, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Let's not debate that right now, Okay. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man man may not utter. Did you pick up on that, right? I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul had come face to face with Christ. Paul had seen the Lord. He was an apostle. The Corinthian church could affirm this declaration on Paul's part he goes on to say, and the result of that apostleship is, you're my workmanship. Look at the fourth question. He says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Well, remember, Paul founded this church in Corinth. Paul was the founding pastor of this church. Everyone that basically came to faith through the work of the church in Corinth was a product of Paul's ministry. But Paul isn't trying to claim some sort of some sort of self-superiority here, but he's trying to make a point. He says, I have the right to be viewed as an apostle. I have this apostolic honor if I wonder it, if I want it. And then verse two, he said, in fact, you are the proof of this, right? He says, even if other people don't view it that way, at least I am to you. At least I'm an apostle to you, right? Because I founded this church. You are the seal of my apostleship. You are an affirmation of my apostolic ministry. In case you're unfamiliar with the way this would work, this seal is a fairly well-known, it would have been understood to this Corinthian church. Because they didn't have the same sort of technology that we had, if you wanted to send a message or if you wanted to send a shipment to somebody, what you would do is you would wrap it up, you would roll it up, you would tie it up, and then you would put a bit of wax on the paper, and then you would press your ring into it, and that would be your seal. And everyone would know that if the message arrived with that seal still intact, it was an affirmation that that letter was from the person whose seal it belonged to. And Paul looks at this Corinthian church and he says, you, as the church, are a verification of my apostleship. You are a seal confirming the genuineness of my apostleship. Paul's point here is he says, I have the right to be free free and to be honored as an apostle. Think about that. This Corinthian church was fighting over their rights and privileges, and they were having all sorts of disputes and hurting each other because they were claiming and holding on to their rights. And Paul says, "You want what rights I could claim? I could claim apostolic honor." Secondarily, he goes on and he says, "This is my defense to those who would examine me." There were some that were seeking apparently to criticize Paul and to undermine his ministry, and so Paul defends his apostleship by defend or to defend his point. Right? He goes on and he says. This is my defense to those who would examine me. To those that are seeking to undermine what I am telling you and to undermine my apostleship, let me give you a defense of that. Then he lists off the second right he could claim. Look at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Remember, they were debating whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, I have the right to eat and drink whatever I want as well. Now it's possible that what's going on here is that there were those that were claiming Paul was part of that immature group. The group that was struggling to eat the meat in the temple. Why? Because there's a good chance that Paul had laid down this right. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20. We're going to look at this next week in more detail. But he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So there's a possibility there was this misunderstanding. People were seeing Paul and they were saying, he's not able to eat these things. He must have this immaturity. Paul's like, I can eat whatever I want. I have the freedom. I have the liberty to eat whatever I want. Thirdly, I have marital freedom. Look at verse five. Do we, and this is where he calls Barnabas into this discussion. We'll see that in just a moment. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? We talked about this whole marriage idea here in the last few weeks, but Paul says, I have the right to get married just like anyone else. I could claim that right. In fact, I could be just like the other apostles. History would tell us most of the apostles were married. The brothers of Christ, like Judas and James and some of those, they would have been married, and Cephas was married. Because in order to have a mother-in-law, you have to be married, right? Remember that story about Cephas and his mother-in-law? Peter, okay? He was married, Paul says, I'm just like them, Paul and I, or Barnabas and I are just like the other apostles, we're just like Cephas, and I have the right to take along, side note here, a believing wife. Literally, the terminology here means a sister as a wife. Remember when we talked back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, about who we marry and how it matters? In 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul says, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Paul reaffirms this idea. I have the right to take along a wife that is a believer. And I want to just rephrase this again. I just want to push this point home again for those of you that are young or are unmarried. Marrying an unbeliever was unimaginable to Paul here. That is outside of his thinking. He says, I have the right to take along a believing wife. Not I have the right to marry an unbeliever. That's a whole separate issue. But I, as an apostle, as a follower of Christ, I have the right To be married, I have a right to get married and to bring my wife along with me on these missions. She's like, of course, okay, that makes sense, Paul. We're following along, except forthright Paul could claim financial support. Look at verse six and seven. He goes on, and this is an implication from being married. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul's like, is it is it just Barnabas and I that have no right to get married? Is it just Barnabas and I that have no right to be paid for the labor and the work we've done in this church? Are we somehow exempt from that right? Because they hadn't been claiming, they hadn't been asking for financial support from this church. Obviously, the answer here implied is no. There's nothing particularly special about Paul and Barnabas where they don't deserve to be paid, like everybody else deserves to be paid. He offers up three illustrations from the word or the world just to make this point home. A soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. He says, who in the world would send a soldier off to war, but then go, you know, while you're fighting this war, in the evenings, I think you're going to need to get a side hustle, you know, and you need to raise a little support to take care of yourself. Fighting isn't enough. But that's ridiculous. You pay soldiers. When they go off to war, you pay them so they can be free to fight. And who plants A vineyard. What sort of farmer plants a vineyard and goes, no, I don't really want to eat any of that? You plant a vineyard, you plant a farm to eat some of the produce. Well, we don't so much anymore, but in the day, you would have. You would have taken the first off the top. Once you'd given some to the Lord, you would have eaten some of the produce. Or if you were a shepherd, like, no, can't have any of the milk. That's not what this is for. It's like, this is ridiculous. Even the world understands this, that when you are working to earn a living You take a living from what you're doing and engaged in. This would have been particularly strong due to the fact that the Greeks hated manual labor. The Greeks hated and despised manual labor. And so there was all sorts of traveling teachers who would wander around and would look for handouts for somebody to support them so that they didn't have to work with their hands. They didn't have to do an honest day's work. Paul says if people are working, if they're doing an honest day's work, they deserve, they have a right to ask for financial support. He says, I, Paul and Barnabas, we also have that right. We have a right to ask you to support me financially. And if you'll notice from verse 5, the way it's worded, it probably infers that they have the right and the responsibility to support Paul and Barnabas if they were to have a wife with them as well. Okay? Like, that's probably the implication of the text. The point Paul is making here is maturity means celebrating the rights we have in Christ. It means recognizing that we have the freedom to not operate under the Old Testament law, to have rights and liberties and freedoms as Christians. Those are the rights and the freedoms that Christ has earned us. We now live by the law of liberty, not by the Old Testament law. But that means that we have to exercise discernment. That means that we have to distinguish between three things. Must, must not, and may, follow with me, must, must not, and may, we have to understand what is a biblical command, what is a must do. These are things like 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 that we talked about, Paul commands this Corinthian church, flee sexual immorality, very clear command in scripture, flee from sexual immorality, or possibly 1 John 3 verse 11 that commands us to love one another, Love one another. It's a a very clear command in Scripture. Or possibly Matthew 28, verse 19, that says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Clear command. All of these are very clear commands from Scripture. Those need to be differentiated from things that are biblical prohibitions or must-nots. These would be things like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, when we were talking about marriage. And Paul said, Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another or in 1st John again verse 2 or chapter 2 verse 15 Paul says or not, John says do not love the world or the things of the world or Hebrews 10:25 that says do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some commands to do something biblical prohibitions to not do something and then we have the area of may or should Areas that are rights or freedoms or options that we have as Christians, but don't have a strictly speaking command, thou shalt or thou shalt not do. And these things are to be guided by biblical principles. We talked about some of these last week, the whole issue of drinking. Scripture clearly says, do not be drunk with wine. Don't do that. It also says that food and drink are not evil. So what do we do? We apply biblical principles. We recognize there is a freedom, there is a right, there is a may, but we don't lump it into a a must or a must not. Or maybe we take the issue of how to school our children. Scripture clearly says bring your children up in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It also says that if your children are believers, they're to have an impact in our culture. So where do you send them to school? What do you do? Well, you may do a lot of things. There are a lot of options. Or possibly, as we addressed last week, the issue of COVID and masks and vaccines. Scripture clearly commands us to love one another and love our neighbors, but it also commands us to fear not. So what do you do? How do you respond? It's an area of Christian freedom. It's an area of Christian liberty. It's an area that we can't bind our consciences. It is an area of may, not must or must not. But we can celebrate the fact that we have freedom to make those decisions wisely in Christ. We've been given that reality. We must take time to identify and to celebrate the freedoms we have in Christ, but without absolutizing them. Without absolutizing them and say everyone else must agree with the way I've chosen to handle it. That's where we get ourselves into trouble and that's the issue Paul's addressing. These two sides that are saying, you have to agree with me on this. You have to agree with me on this. He says this is an area of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that how Paul encourages his listeners to think? In the next section, Paul examines these rights through a biblical lens, and we learn that we must also submit our rights to God's word. Look at verse 8. First we see that we are to submit our rights to biblical authority. Verse 8 says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Is Paul simply sharing his human thoughts and opinions here? His thoughts about rights and freedoms and privileges and the way we should respond? No. He says we should examine the scriptures and to see what they say on this subject. That's exactly how we should operate too, right? We should be seeking to answer life's questions with biblical principles and answers. We should search the word to find out what the word has to say on any number of different subjects. You find yourself wondering, how am I supposed to parent my children? See what the word has to say about it. How am I supposed to respond to my boss? See what the word has to say about it. How am I supposed to handle my money? See what the word has to say about it. Too often, we just share our worldly opinions and dress them up in Christian language. We make them sound really Christian, but really, at the heart of it, they're not biblical principles, they're worldly principles. Like I said on the midweek podcast this week, there's a temptation to confuse American freedoms with Christian rights. If I say Christian rights and you're thinking in your head the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you're confusing things. Scripture speaks to these, but we should examine what the Word has to say to us first. This is why all of our faith life groups seek to foster what we've called a biblical context, a place where life's questions are answered with what the word has to say, where we bring the word of God to bear in practical, helpful ways in our lives. But Paul's point is that we must submit our perceived rights and privileges to biblical authority first and foremost. So what does the Bible have to say about this issue of rights and freedoms? Paul focuses in on this fourth right, this right to be paid, and he identifies the biblical teaching. Look at verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. We're like, hold on, what? What does that have to do with anything, Paul? How is that relevant to the discussion of whether or not you should get paid? Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4 here highlighting what was in the Old Testament law, an agrarian culture where he was like, okay, so when you've got an ox out in, and they're threshing out the grain, which means they're, they're crushing it, right, to separate the grain from the chaff so that the chaff can blow away and they can make bread out of the grain. When the ox is out there and he's grinding that down, don't muzzle him, okay? The ox deserves to eat something. You're just gonna make him upset if you make him grind out all the grain, but you don't allow him to eat any of it. Makes sense in an agrarian culture. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? Paul asks two penetrating questions. He says, does he not, or is it for the oxen that God is concerned, does he not certainly speak for our sake? He says, is this this really about oxen? There's a broader principle that must be identified here. And that principle is, the worker deserves his wages. If the ox deserves to eat something while he's working, does not a person deserve the same privilege and right? Does that not make sense? So Paul identifies this biblical teaching and then he applies it to their situation. Look at verse 10 again. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, then the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So if it applies to oxen, it certainly applies to people. The general principle at play here is that the worker deserves his wages. Right, We understand a plowman and a thresher, hopefully a little bit. Right, The plowman was the one that walked behind the oxen that that made the furrows in the field so that the, the crop could be planted in that field. The thresher was the one that aided in that process of throwing up the wheat so that the chaff would blow away. And he's like, if they work in this area, do they not deserve to be paid for their work? Fairly straightforward. Except now he gets specific. Look at verse 11. He says this, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? See, and the specific application is that ministers of the gospel deserve their wages too. This is a touchy subject, right? It's an awkward one to preach on. If we weren't preaching through 1 Corinthians and I didn't just come to this verse, you might think that I had an agenda here. like. But I can assure you of two things. Number one, we've done all the verses up to this point, so it's just where we're at. And number two, I'm fairly sure the stewardship team has affirmed the 2023 budget, and so I'm not, I'm not asking for a raise here, okay? If you're new, we don't talk about this every week. Don't worry, okay? We're going to work through this. But his point is that a minister deserves his wages as well. He says, if we sowed into your lives spiritual things, if we shared the gospel with you, if we invested in you through biblical teaching, should we not reap material things back from you? Do we not have the right to be supported in our ministry? The answer is yes. Now, hold on, briefly skip over the last part of verse 12. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment and go down to verse 13 because he exemplifies this point in verse 13 and 14. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He says, This was true in the Old Testament too, right? The priests got their support, they got their food from the sacrifices that were offered. If you're unfamiliar with the way it worked, basically when people would bring in some sort of an animal or even other food to be sacrificed on the altar, typically they would slaughter the animal, they would take a portion of the animal, and that would be burned. More often than not, it was the fat, okay? Certain parts would be dis- or like, gotten rid of, certain parts would be burned on the altar, and then the priests would take a certain share, and then the rest would be eaten by the family in celebration. But that's how the priests, that's how they made their living. That's how they survived, by the food they got from those that had sacrificed things on the altar. He says, this is true for the Old Testament priests. They're supported by the work they do of offering these sacrifices up. And if it's true in the Old Testament, it's also true in the New Testament. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It says it's true of the Old Testament prophets. And if it's true of an ox, then it's certainly true of New Testament ministers. Right? Right? In the corner of your Bible, write 1 Timothy 5, 17, and 18. Paul affirms this exact same thing when writing his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And that probably implies financial support. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Pretty straightforward. Paul's saying all workers deserve to be paid well, but especially gospel workers. Okay, let's address this. Specific principle here. It means we must be generous to our employees. Those of you that are owners of businesses, those of you that are bosses sitting out here, it's people before profits. It's people before profits. Our task is to be as generous as we possibly can. Okay? And I realize you have to keep your business afloat. I get that, okay? I've been in that seat. But I found it ironic that when I was going to the university, and I have a minor in business, that I was sitting in business classes, and the process was always try and eke as much as you possibly can out of everybody whenever you have the opportunity. Pay people as little as you can, charge as much as you can, so that you can make as much as you can. That's the world's view. It's not what Scripture has to say. Scripture says the worker deserves his wages. We are to be a generous people. Because was Christ not generous with us? you can have just a little bit of grace. You know, just a little bit, just enough to get by. No, it's grace upon grace, right? As a church, like I said, this is where it gets awkward. It means that we pay as generously as we can. You'll hear ideas, and churches are in different states, and I must say that Faith Bible has been incredibly generous over the years. I have never found myself wondering about whether I'm going to get paid or how much I'm going to get paid or having to worry about that. And that is an incredible privilege we have. And every church has different abilities to pay people, so it's not always apples to apples. But some churches take on the mindset that, like, we will try and keep our pastors humble by keeping them poor. Those two things go, don't, they don't go together. Trust me, you can be very poor and very proud at the same time. And you can be rich and still be humble. And yet, we have to recognize the sacrifices that people in ministry take. The staff is going to hate that I'm going to say this, (laughs) uh, but I'm the interim preacher, so what are we going to do? (laughs) Okay? The fact of the matter is, everyone that's on staff at this church understands that ministry employment means material sacrifices. There are realities of going into ministry that everyone recognizes, and no one on staff begrudges that choice that they've made but I can say unequivocally that all of our staff could be making more somewhere else. They could all be making more in a different industry outside of the church if they wanted to. But because of God's call on their life, they've chosen this route. And they're not asking for more money. They're not asking for more praise. But I would encourage you that if you get an opportunity to provide recognition and appreciation for what they have sacrificed, to take that opportunity. It's easy to remember the guy up here on the platform that you see every week. It's really hard to remember everybody else that works week in and week out in that office and frankly does the vast majority of what takes place around here. If you get the chance to to recognize that, to appreciate what they've sacrificed, I'd encourage you to take take them up on it. I would also encourage you to take some time to consider. Some of you are new and you don't know Pastor Tom when he was here at the church, but he spent 29 years sacrificing in this ministry for this church for the sake of those of you that are sitting here, I encourage you, if this afternoon you get a moment, send him a text. Thank him. Express your appreciation for what he did and what he sacrificed. Again, no one here is necessarily asking for more money. That's not the point. And yet, a little bit of appreciation goes a long way as well. Let me just add to that. That's that's the specific principle that's in mind here. But we must remember that while Paul is taking up this issue of paying your pastors, he's doing it for the sake of a broader argument about rights and freedoms in Christ. The broader principle at play here is that maturity means submitting our rights to the Word of God. Submitting what we think we're owed, what we think we're due, what we think we have the right to, to God's Word, and saying, what does the Word of God say about this subject. And in that respect, the word of God is kind of like those old decoder glasses you used to get in cereal boxes. They don't do that anymore, do they? But they used to do that, right? And it's like, if you got both parts, you could put the glasses together, whatever, and you could read a secret message on the cereal box. And you somehow thought this is gonna be an amazing moment. It's like, what are the cereal producers gonna do that's gonna be so amazing? But as a kid, it was amazing. And when you got it and you finally got the decoder glasses and you got to see what was on the box, the message was always disappointing. And yet, somehow, it opened your eyes to be able to see something that you didn't see there before. That's kind of how the Word of God informs the way we practice business and the way we practice the people we employ. The way it informs our rights and privileges as believers. I remember I had this wonderful moment sitting in a 200 or 300 level management class at the university. We went through a whole semester, and he taught however many weeks. And this guy, what he had done is he had gone all over the world, and he had worked with Gallup, you know, the surveying company. And he'd queried all of these massive businesses that were super successful on how they treated their employees and how to handle situations and all that sort of thing. And, and I remember coming down, it was either the last class or the second to last class before we took our final. And it was like this grand epiphany moment for him. He stands up before and he said, the result of all of this research and thousands of people interviewed and all of this sort of thing, and it basically came down to treat your employees well. Treat your employees like people. And I'm like, so, so, so you mean... He did all that research, and you could have read, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what the Word of God does. If you haven't read the book of Proverbs, it's incredibly illuminating on this subject. It's like a set of decoder glasses saying, this is the way the world actually works. Can you live this way? We must submit our rights to the Word of God. We must obey what Scripture has clearly called us to do, avoid what it has clearly called us not to do, and apply biblical wisdom everywhere else. But it is all directed by what the Word of God has to say. Our rights must be submitted to the Word of God. But there is a key in Paul's argument that we skipped over. Go back to verse 12, and the crux of Paul's argument isn't just celebrating his rights, isn't just submitting his rights to God's Word, it involves surrendering our rights for the sake of the mission. Look at verse 12, the second part, he starts off with, Nevertheless, he says, I have all of these rights. I could tell you you have to support me financially. I could tell you I'm an apostle, you need to honor me. I could tell you I deserve to be married. Nevertheless, what was Paul's practice? He says, we have not made use of this right. He says, instead of demanding these rights from you, we have chosen to defer. We have chosen to lay down these rights for your sake. This is exactly what we talked about last week. We don't exercise a freedom if we know that would make our brother or sister in Christ stumble. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I know there's all these traveling salesmen that are trying to get everything they possibly can out of you. And so we didn't ask for financial support because we didn't want that to be a problem. We didn't want that to wound you. Or at the end of chapter 7 or chapter 8, remember what he said, right? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meet lest i make my brother stumble so i have deferred my rights i have the right to ask for these things and yet i have chosen not to love limits liberty and for us that may be drinking that may be not always speaking our mind the moment something comes to our mind it may mean any number of things that fit into this may category but we are called to lay down those rights for the sake of others. Because that's what Christ did for us. But Paul takes it even a step further and he takes that practice into a principle. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, and this is critical for us to know, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way. Think about that for a moment. For those of you wondering, well, what does anything mean here? Let me see if I can help you here. The Greek word is panta, and it means everything. Does that clarify things? All. Everything. All of it. We endure everything. We put up with everything. We lay down whatever is necessary. Why would Paul do that? For gospel impact rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ he says I knew that when I came to you Corinthian church if I had asked for money you would have looked at me skeptically because you would have said you're just like all those other traveling speakers you're just trying this get rich quick thing we share that same sentiment right because we know TV evangelists and this whole thing right just send me $5 and God will give you 20 right and so we're cynical too Because we struggle with the same thing. So Paul says, I didn't ask for financial support, but I didn't ask for it, not because I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it because I didn't want to put away an obstacle in the way of you understanding the gospel. He says, and that's what I'm calling each and every one of you to as well. I'm not calling you to do something that I haven't first done myself. The term here, this idea of obstacle, I love that. I wasn't much of a track fan in high school. I know some of you probably were. My my older brother he ran hurdles, and it makes me think of this mind. I was always terrified of the hurdle, like because it's like kill you when you get tired while you're trying to jump over it. Right? Whatever race you be, it's like it's like a hurdle. And and Paul's illustration here is rather than putting an obstacle in your way, I tried to pull those obstacles out of the way. Right? He's saying you defending your rights and freedoms is like you walking around the track as someone's trying to run, and you're just dropping obstacles in their way. Here's another hurdle for you to have to jump over. So imagine the ridiculousness of that. As you're trying to win somebody for the Christ, you're also dropping these obstacles in their way. So it doesn't make any sense. Why would you possibly do that? He says, we are called to endure anything for the sake of the gospel. Anything for the sake of those that don't know Christ. So when we come to our third and final point. Maturity means Surrendering our rights for the advance of the gospel. Maturity means we surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel. It's kind of like being enlisted in the military. I know some of you served, so you know what I'm talking about here, right? When you sign on the dotted line, you are aware of the fact that at that moment, the military, whatever branch, owns you, right? If they tell you to stay here, you stay here. If they tell you to go overseas, you go overseas. If they tell you to sit and wait in a corner, you do that. They own you from that moment on. And Christ is saying, Paul is saying here, it's just like that. Christ has purchased you with his blood. He has bought you from your lawless, sinful background. He has purchased you. And now you have the right and the responsibility to lay down your preferences and your rights for the sake of the mission, for the sake of what I have called you to. As individual believers, that means we have to ask ourselves questions like, what freedoms do we currently act on that may be putting obstacles in the way of our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving neighbors, our unbelieving coworkers, our unbelieving classmates? What obstacles, what things about the way I'm choosing to live my life, things that I have every right to do, are putting obstacles in the way of that person coming to salvation in Christ? Is it the way we spend our time and the way we defend that time and say, I get to choose what I do with my schedule? Is it what we do with our money, what we give to or choose not to, the car we buy, the house we buy, whatever the case might be? Is it our own personal comfort? saying it's really uncomfortable to share the gospel with that person, so I'm going to prize my own comfort over their salvation. And again, I said sometimes we get these things confused, or maybe it's our freedom of speech. We have the right to free speech in this country. We don't have the right to say whatever we want to according to the Word of God. Our speech, our freedom, is constrained. It is directed by what God's Word says. And so we speak as salt and light into the world. As a church, we have to ask the question, what right might God be calling us to give up to win others for Christ? Maybe it's our comfort as a church. Maybe it's our security. Maybe it's our safety. What has God called us to do as a church that causes us to lay down our rights that we have for the sake of winning people for Christ? I'm going to talk more about this next week. But the key point of all of it is this. Maturity makes our rights secondary to our mission. As believers in Christ, our mission, the Great Commission, to go therefore into all the nations and make disciples of all of them, is primary. Our rights are secondary. I said before that questions can have the power to transform and redirect a life. He's going to be embarrassed by the way I tell this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. As I was talking with Greg this week, I was asking him, what's an example of a question that changed the trajectory of your life, that rerouted where you were headed? For those of you that don't know, Greg Heiser, our administrative director, a number of years back was diagnosed with Kennedy's disease. It's a muscular degenerative disease. And as a result, he was meeting with some of his superiors in his office, And they were trying to figure out what his path forward was. Would he stay with the company he was with and get kind of a different sort of position where he could sit at an office chair that wouldn't be as physically active and kind of take the the gliding path career-wise out? Or would he just retire, devote his time to fishing and golfing and whatever other endeavors it might be for his life? There was an individual on the HR team that looked across the table that he didn't realize at the time but was actually a believer and looked at him and said, Greg, you're a believer, aren't you? Greg's like, yeah. Have you considered how God might be using this circumstance to take your life in a completely different direction? The rest is history. God used that question to redirect the last seven years of Greg's life, to take him in an entirely different direction, to bring him on staff here at the church. That question forced him to ask if he was going to sit back and enjoy the rights and the privileges that he had earned or of a lifetime of work. To take the easy job or to take the retirement path. Or if he was going to submit all of those good things to God's will for him and Christ's mission for the church. That question brought him to a moment of crisis. And that's the question that stands before every single one of us here today. Are you going to spend your time fighting for the rights and the privileges that you think you deserve? Or are you going to submit all of those good things to God's will and Christ's mission for the church? Imagine what God might do in you and through you if you commit to that today. Imagine what God might do in this church and through this church if we all together commit to that today. Commit to instead focusing on the mission of the church rather than fighting for the rights and privileges and opinions that we think we deserve. That would be something to see. Let's pray. Father, as we look at our lives, I know it's so easy to get focused on the details. It's so easy to get focused on the day in and day out of work and and jobs, and school, and finances, and all of that. But Lord, we know you're calling us to something greater. You're calling us to something bigger. You have purchased us with your blood, and you have asked us to commit our lives, and our livelihoods, and our thoughts, and our attitudes, and our ambitions, and all of it to you for the sake of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that as a church and as individuals, that we would be committed to that, that we would recognize our need to lay down our rights and freedoms, the things that we get the chance to do in this country and as believers, but we would lay them down for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of seeing some one to salvation in Christ. Keep that vision in front of us as we head forward as a church. For the sake of those around us and for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.